Well, I have to admit, in my school years, I always found it rather confusing when the teacher would say, don't get smart with me. <laughs> But I hope you might learn a thing or two uh, in this message today. Like maybe this little knowledge nugget. Do you know how dolphins sleep? Huh. Well, their breathing is not automatic. They have to think about when they take their next breath. God designed them that way, also gave them some other pretty amazing uh, abilities. While sleeping, dolphins only use half of their brain at a time, and they close only one eye at a time. Did you know that? When the left eye is closed, the right side of the brain is resting. When the right eye is closed, the left side of the brain is resting. They alternate from one side of the brain to the other, getting the rest they need, yet they never fully lose consciousness. Whatever. You ever thought of something so trivial as where does the word trivia comes from? Huh. It seems that the ancient Romans didn't have cell phones or the internet, but perhaps they had post-its. They must have because it seems that they posted a lot of notices on a certain big gate at one entrance to the city of Rome. I guess if you know, owned a, a nice Italian restaurant, you, you could tell people where it was, or if Flavius Maximus lost his pussy caddis, uh, he could stick up a notice where folks coming into town could read it, and a lot of people passed through there, and uh, through those three main roads from the countryside, they all converged at that gate. Lots of traffic, three roads coming in through the gate, a huge bulletin board of sorts. How's your Latin? Three roads. Try via. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> a pessimist sees a, a dark tunnel. An optimist sees a light at the end of the tunnel. A realist sees a freight train coming. The engineer in the train sees three idiots standing on the track. <laughs> yeah, Whatever. Whatever. That word can mean so much, and yet the way we use it makes it seem to mean so little. Whatever, who cares, no biggie, whatever. Yet the Apostle Paul seemed to have placed a great deal of importance on that word, whatever. The letter of Paul to the Philippians is believed to have been written by St. Paul while he was in a Roman prison about 30 years after Jesus was crucified. By this time, he was not expected to live much longer. A trial, a possible execution, a looming time must have been very important to him, but apparently he wanted to make a very important point to his readers about putting thoughts into action. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In our current culture, whatever 
has taken on an apathetic, who cares meaning, often used by people who are finished listening. It's like a shoulder shrug of the tongue as someone walks away and shuts down a conversation. Whatever. Minimizes any importance in the message. Let the dog out as soon as you get home. Remember, we don't need any more accidents. Whatever. Make sure you take out the garbage. There's no pickup next week and the raccoons are out. Whatever. But you know what? Jesus said this, do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word, and that absolutely includes whatever. An amazing, all-encompassing, inclusive, and important word that you'll find nearly 175 times in the New Testament alone. A word that Paul used six times in a single sentence to get us to think about some very important issues, truth, honor, justice, pureness, loveliness, anything commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. He started with whatever is true. Truth may be the most damaged and misused virtue in our society today. Sir Winston Churchill had a great down-to-earth way of saying anything. He had a great line, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has time to get its pants on. Can you think of a truly honest, a truthful person? Can you think of somebody that always acts with integrity and honesty? I'll bet they're one of your favorite people. Such people are the bedrock of society because you can count on them and you can count on their word. You can trust their advice, you can value their opinion because, well, every word and action is rooted in truth. For centuries, some of the most important words in any court case were, do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Without truth, what do you have? I once read a sad and pathetic quote that unfortunately reflects the values of many these days. Truth is irrelevant. What matters is what people believe. What a foolish thing to say. Truth is very relevant. If you believe that you can fly and then you jump off a 10-story building, you'll find that out very quickly. The world doesn't need more people who teach or believe that truth is irrelevant or subjective, but we could use more people who respect and know the truth. John 8, 31-32 says this, If you hold to my teaching, Jesus said, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. First Paul says, Think about whatever is truth, and so does wise King Solomon. Proverbs 23, 7, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Fill your heart with truth. Philippians 1, 27 says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of God. Seek truth, speak truth, resist and reject lies. An accountant friend of mine told me his best advice about finances in life would be to always tell the truth, then you never have to remember what you said. You just say what's true. Don't get caught in your own or in someone else's web of lies. Make it a habit to think and act in honesty and truth. Be the salt of the earth, the light on the hill, and let light shine through with truth in every thought and deed. The second whatever on Paul's list is whatever is noble or honorable. According to my good buddies Merriam and Webster, two aspects of being honorable are 
to be conscientious, and to be characterized by integrity. Consistently honest, just upright behavior earns you a reputation that is not tarnished or sullied by suspicion or by doubt. A reputation characterized by integrity, guided by a keen sense of duty and ethical conduct. We've heard so often that honesty is the best policy. And many of us have heard the famous moniker, Honest Abe. Well, it's said that former American President Abraham Lincoln loved that nickname and was very proud of it. Here he is reading the Bible to his wife and son. He was a man deeply versed in Christian scripture, and he had no fear of displaying his deep faith in God and his desire for others to know God's wisdom. As a lawyer, he openly discouraged unnecessary litigation, uh, litigation and how honest is that? He believed in his own integrity. He worked very hard to earn a reputation as an honest politician and lawyer, not easy to do even in the 19th century. If you've ever visited the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., the walls are covered with the wisdom and humble faith offerings of this great American. Here are a few quotes from Abraham Lincoln that you'll see on these walls. Sir, my concern is not about whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. I am not bound to be right, but I am bound to be true. I am not bound to succeed, but I am bound to live by the light that I have. I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon the earth and be an atheist, but I cannot conceive how a man could look up into the heavens and say there is no God. And we should have paid attention to this one a long time ago. The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. President Abraham Lincoln, wise, thoughtful, honest, an honorable man, honored by man while seeking the heart of God. Proverbs 22 and 11 promises this, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Just imagine what an incredible honor it would be when your life has been lived and you meet your creator. You have Jesus Christ, the king of kings, look at you and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Whatever is honorable. Think about these things. The next one, Paul recommends thinking about whatever is just. Isaiah 56, 1, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Psalm 89, 14, God is just. It is part of his character, which means he is always just. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, justice is the morally fair and right state of everything. To have justice as a character trait means that you are just and treat everyone the same. You treat others as you would have them treat you. So justice, as difficult as the concept of judgment, reward, punishment can be, is apparently the application of the golden rule in our lives. Being just is to treat everyone, whatever, their social status, their sex, age, height, heritage, skin color, whatever they may be, to treat them with, uh, with respect and equality. There are many examples in the Bible showing how Jesus understood and practiced justice. The Gospel according to Luke contains the story of the despised tax collector Zacchaeus encountering Jesus. Luke 19 verses 1 to 10. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through it 
A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus scurried down that sycamore tree and was happy to welcome Jesus into his home. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he's gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. After meeting and listening to Jesus, Zacchaeus said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him and his other guests, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. Colombian Christian author Maria Eugenia Leon peels back the layers of this encounter for us, quote, Jesus never pressured or demanded of Zacchaeus that he make that decision. He simply looked into Zacchaeus' heart and the effort Zacchaeus had made to meet him and responded to that. It could be precisely that gesture of generosity and the compassion of Jesus that motivated Zacchaeus to decide to return what had been wrongfully taken. Jesus teaches us that we all have the power to transform a situation with an act of love when it is least expected. His idea of justice confronts us, makes us question ourselves, and surprises us as much as it surprised that crowd when Jesus asked Zacchaeus to come down from the tree. Unquote. To act justly is to take actions to protect and restore relationships with man and God. God is a just and merciful God. He demands justice. He hates sin. But boy, does he love the sinner. Every one of us. Justice is when you get what you deserve. But mercy must be something we strive to give. After all, that's exactly what God did. He paid the penalty for our sins through his son Jesus on that cross. Micah 6.8 He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Whatever is just, think about these things. Now Paul instructs that we should think about whatever is pure, I remember when I was a boy, my dad used to grab a big plastic milk jug. You remember those? Or maybe two or three, depending how many we had around the house. And we'd drive just about a mile past St. Vincent Street on Highway 400, between the highway and Little Lake. Some of you may have done this or may remember this. There'd always be other cars parked on the road, on the shoulder of the highway, and folks would be lined up to get their cold, natural, pure spring water. Man, it was good. It was so refreshing. Just bubbled out of the ground. No sediments, no additives, no GST. God's pure gift. Pure is a great word, and Paul says we need to think about whatever is pure. Okay, let's do that. How about pure joy? The thought will mean different things to different people, but I bet that when you think of what joy means to you, you feel good. You might even smile. Maybe it's when you're alone or with a favorite someone in nature, trekking through the bush, or paddling on a perfectly calm lake with that mist burning off just as the sun is rising and the loons 
in the distance. Fish jumps in the water. Maybe you experience something close to pure joy when you're sitting around the fire with friends or family or sitting around the table with those folks you love. Or maybe you can still recall the first time you looked into your child's eyes or the moment you actually realized that Jesus loves you. Paul wants you to think about joy. It's a rapturous, wonderful thing when you've got joy, 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 joy down in your heart. One of my favorite characters in TV was Granny from the Beverly Hillbillies, and that was her favorite song. <laughs> Luke 15 and 7. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. Pure joy in heaven, purity is about wholeness. Matthew 5 and 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But what is a pure heart? Heart in the Bible is not an organ that pumps blood. It's the center of our being. Mind, will, emotions, it's the essence of our intellect, our will, and our spirit. Hebrews 5 and 12 talks about, or 4 and 12 talks about the thoughts and intents of the heart. And in Proverbs 4.23 we read, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That's not easy. Our hearts are a product of our fallen nature. On our own we cannot have a pure heart. No matter how hard we try, on our own we will sin. On our own, we will fall short of God's standard of a pure heart. Just like you cannot get a pure diamond. Very close, but it's never perfect, and it's never flawless. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he is referring to those who have been given God's heart. Because God promises in Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit will, I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You want a healthy heart? Ask God for a new one. Whatever is pure, think about these things. Whatever is lovely. One of my favorite songs is a tune that Stevie Wonder wrote about his baby daughter. It's called, Isn't She Lovely? And for a blind man to write such a song, such a lovely song about a little baby, in itself is a lovely thing. Because you see, lovely goes so much deeper than just something we can see. It's a special word, so special, that this passage of Scripture is the only place in the Bible where the word lovely is actually used. That's right, lovely stands alone in Philippians 4 and 8. It's that unique, it's that special, it's that wonderful. Just like lovely things. The Greek word for lovely in Philippians is prosphiles. This word means acceptable or pleasing. Did you notice that the previous instruction in this scripture was to think about pure things? Do you think Paul intentionally put pure and lovely back to back? Think pure and lovely thoughts, he says. What perfectly partnered words, pure and lovely. So purify your very thoughts so the things you think on are lovely, not ugly. Lovely, not hurtful, just lovely. Well, you ask, how do we know if a thought is lovely? What would Jesus think? Is what you're thinking anything that would embarrass you if you knew that 
Jesus knew what you were thinking. And the book of Samuel teaches us that God does not see as man sees, since man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God knows what we're doing and thinking. So think about what you're doing and thinking. Don't know where I found this gem, but here you go. Being negative only makes a difficult journey more difficult. Just because you've been given a cactus doesn't mean you have to sit on it. <laughs> Don't harbor thoughts of negativity, judgment, anger, resentment, loathing, self-centeredness. The devil's playground is a darkened heart. Your thoughts either glorify the Lord or they don't. Think about the things that are pleasing and acceptable to Him. Think about great friends, beautiful sights, sounds, heavenly fragrances. Think about love, forgiveness, kindness, moments of joy. Think about uplifting scripture, beautiful songs, a perfect sunset over the lake, fields of bloom with flowers, and a mile-long field of wind-waved wheat. Think about whatever is lovely. Finally, in Philippians 4.8, Paul advises us to take a summary look at the previous verses and to think about whatever is commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of trophies, medals around my house. I don't have a Pulitzer Prize. I don't have a Super Bowl ring on my finger. But I remember the day my dad told me he was proud of me. Something I did that day was considered by my dad to be commendable and worthy of praise. When I heard those words, I was motivated to try and do more things for which my dad would be proud, more things which would be worthy of his praise. As we grow and mature in our Christian lives and realize how much God our Father loves us, how much Christ sacrificed for us, we should grow in the desire to please him in everything we think and do and work for the glory of God. Legendary composer Johann Sebastian Bach penned his initials JSB to the bottom of many of his musical scores so the creator of the work would be known. But he also wrote the initials SDG at the bottom of his work. SDG being a short form for Sole Deo Gloria, which is Latin for glory to God alone. Bach included this at the end of his compositions to make the ultimate purpose of his work very clear. The music was not to bring glory to the performers or the conductor or even to Bach himself, but glory to God alone. Here's an excellent and commendable life lesson. It's full of wisdom and worthy of praise and worthy of repeating. An old Cherokee chief sat down to teach his grandson about life. There's a fight going on inside me, he tells the young boy, a fight between two wolves. One wolf is evil. It's full of malice, anger, greed, self-pity, and false pride. The other is good. It's full of peace, love, joy, kindness, and humility. This same fight is going on inside you and everyone else on the face of the earth, he says. The grandson was quiet, pondering this for a moment, and then he asked, Grandfather, which wolf will win? The old man smiled and replied, The one you feed. The Apostle Paul knew about the wolves fighting in the heart. He knew that all people have the potential for good and evil. He also very well knew that every action comes from the thoughts and the dreams of our hearts. What you will take in, you will put out. So he encouraged his readers in the city of Philippi to focus on whatever is truth, whatever is noble, 
whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is admirable and commendable, to feed the good within and to be able to easily discern truth and build wisdom in our hearts, to be able to recognize the voice of Jesus and pay heed to it, to learn to be kind and merciful, to become salt and light. But Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 26-27, also has a warning. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Whenever you hear the word whatever, let it be a reminder to you to follow the great apostle's advice in the fourth chapter of Philippians. Focus on whatever it takes to grow and mature in your life with Christ. Build your house on a solid foundation of teaching from the one who, in his great love for us, paid the cost for our transgressions. Think on these things and know this promise from Paul. Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Peace rules the day when Christ rules the heart.